Let me say that one more time. When you reveal your weakness, Jesus reveals his power. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. My name's Luke. I get to be one of the ministers here at PCC. If you're joining us online right now, welcome. We are glad that you're with us and we hope that eventually you'll choose to join us in person because we have a lot of stuff going on in the life of our church right now and it's really exciting. We got all these Christmas events that I love. It's like red sweater time, you know, busted out. It's good stuff. But also in the coming year, we have a lot of stuff right in the first month of the year. You might remember January 16th is the day where we move into the brand new worship center and we kick off our new service times of 745, 915 and 1045, and that's gonna be great. Um, And look, it's a cool room. Don't get me wrong, we're excited to be in there. But this is just a building, and that is just a room, and it's gonna go out of style, just like any building and any room does, but what will last forever is the spiritual house that God is building here. We believe with all of our hearts that God is doing a work among us to make Plainfield Christian Church a group of people that are bonded together by the blood of Jesus in a kind of radically compelling unity that the world needs to see. That we're living in a world that is fractured and fragmented, where people are living in echo chambers of people who only think like them and agree like them, but we get to show the world what it looks like to be followers of Jesus who are unified across generational lines and ethnic lines and preferential lines, and we get to be the people of God in our town. Are you excited about that? Because I am. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. That's January 16th. Now, January 9th, don't forget, is Steve White's last sermon as our senior minister, and we're going to have a good time that day. We're going to have a reception for he and Diana here in this room that afternoon, and I hope that you will choose to join us here for that and to express our gratitude for them for how well uh, they have led and served this congregation for the last 35 years. Listen, um, it's an incredibly rare thing that a church gets to do what we are getting to do here in this season. You guys see the stories just like I do. For somebody to lead as long and as well with integrity and effectiveness like Steve White has is an incredible thing. And we have an amazing opportunity to celebrate them and thank them, but also to celebrate God for his faithfulness through them. Can I get an amen on that this morning? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Now, Steve and I hear from people every now and then who said, man, you know, it must be great being a preacher. You guys only have to work like one day a week, right? And uh, actually, it, it's really only 30 minutes a week. So yeah, it is a pretty good gig. We like it a lot. Um, but uh, Steve knows, um, you know, you guys have real jobs, right? You guys live, live in the real world. And so you guys don't always get to see how the sausage gets made here. But I have gotten the privilege to see the way that Steve White, day in and day out, has labored with God on your behalf and how he has gone to battle in prayer for this church and how he has wrestled with God for every sermon, every funeral, every wedding, every counseling appointment. And how many times has he been there for me and for you in our darkest moments? He has stood in the gap on behalf of this church. And we get to say thank you. And it's gonna be an awesome thing. And Steve knows um, that, This thing that we do called ministry and leading God's church, this is a weighty task. This mantle that he's been wearing is a heavy thing. And he knows that someday he will stand before God, as will I, and we will account for every word that we have said here and everything that we've done to lead. We will account to some degree for the spiritual health of this church. Uh, James chapter three, verse one says this about the leaders of God's church. It warns us saying, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. 
That is a heavy weight to carry. And yet Steve has been willing to even go through and face a stricter judgment from God so that you can know Jesus better. That is an incredible thing. And we get to do for him in these coming weeks what he has done for us because he's given us God's word so many times right when we needed it in the way that we needed it. And now we, as the body of Christ, have this amazing privilege day in and day out where we get to speak the words of God to each other. We get to speak the truth to each other. So I hope that you'll join me in these coming weeks every time you get a chance to speak to Steve and Diana and say, well done, good and faithful servants. And it's gonna make them squirm and I can't wait to see it. It's gonna be awesome. (laughs) We're gonna get to the sermon, but before we do, would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, you are a good and gracious God. Um, We thank you today that you are a God who speaks and that when you speak, things happen, that you spoke 10,000 galaxies into existence. When you speak, Lord, your creation bows to hear and to obey. So that's what we do here today. Our simple request here this morning, Lord, is that you would speak, for we, your servants, are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, all God's people said, Amen. amen, amen. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. When you reveal your weakness, Jesus reveals his power. Let me say that one more time. When you reveal your weakness, Jesus reveals his power. That's where we're going today, so hang on to that sentence. We're gonna come back to it in a little bit. But first, can I tell you two things this morning that will potentially ruin your Christmas? All right, here it is. Thing number one. With, with, with all that time off that I have during those six days of the week that I don't work, um, I've been doing a lot of research on whether or not the Santa Claus story could actually be true. Could I summarize my findings for you today? Here's what I found. Let's start with the reindeer. Now, uh, zoologists and those kinds of people will tell you that there is no known species of reindeer that can fly, but I also found that there are currently 300,000 species of living organisms here on Earth that have yet to to be classified. So I think that totally doesn't completely rule out the idea that there might be flying reindeer somewhere that only St. Nick has ever seen. So that's the animals. Let's move to the map though. How's Santa Claus gonna pull this operation off? Well, if we estimate that there's about 2 billion children in the world today, but apparently Santa does not necessarily visit the Hindu, Jewish, Muslim, and Buddhist children, that means that he has about 378 kids that he's got to hit on Christmas Eve. 378 children across the world. Now, if we take that and we put an average of 3.5 children in each household, that means that Santa has to hit 91.8 million homes on Christmas Eve. 91.8 million. Now, That's assuming, of course, that there's at least one good kid in each house. Um, And I know my house that sometimes there's zero, but we're gonna give these kids the benefit of the doubt today. So if you actually take into account the rotation of the earth and time zones and things, things like that, Santa Claus has 31 hours to work with on Christmas Eve to get the mission done. That means he has to hit 822 homes per second. 822 homes per second. That means that jolly old Saint Nick has less than one one hundredth of a second to land the sleigh on the roof, park the sleigh, get out of the sleigh, slide down the chimney, fill all the stockings, get the presents under the tree, eat a couple cookies, take a swig of milk, get back up the chimney into the sleigh and hoof it to the next house. Less than one one hundredth of a second. Now, assuming all of those houses are evenly distributed, which we know, of course, that they are not, but we're gonna allow some wiggle room for the magic of Christmas. We are talking about a total trip of 75 million miles, not counting bathroom breaks. 
So in order for him to make all of these stops in time, that means Santa's sleigh is gonna be moving at approximately 650 miles per second, which is 3,000 times the speed of sound. Now, your normal reindeer, like your conventional earthly reindeer lives in the North Pole, South Pole Zoo. I don't, like, I, I don't know where they live, right? But, but the normal reindeer can run roughly 15 miles an hour, 15 miles an hour. But we know, of course, Santa's reindeer are not normal reindeer, are they? They have names like Comet and Blitzen. And so we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt again. Now, we have to talk about the payload of the sleigh, too, in all of this. If we assume that each child gets only one two-pound Lego set for Christmas, that means that Santa's sleigh is going to be carrying a cargo of approximately 321,000 tons, not counting Santa himself, who does not appear to be skinny. And again, your conventional normal reindeer can pull about 300 pounds. But even with, we assume that a flying reindeer can maybe pull 10 times that amount, that still means that Santa's gonna need approximately 214,000 reindeer to pull his sleigh. That's a pretty big team of reindeer. So to pull all of this together, this means that we have roughly 350,000 tons flying at 650 miles per second. That creates a lot of air resistance. And a lot of air resistance creates a lot of heat, just like a spacecraft entering the Earth's atmosphere. In fact, this is a real number. The lead pair of reindeer, just those two reindeer in the front, will absorb 14.3 quintillion joules of energy per second each. Of course, they will instantaneously burst into flame, <laughs> as will each successive pair of reindeer behind them, creating a wake of deafening sonic booms behind them. And then, once the entire group of reindeer is vaporized, Santa himself is going to be subjected to roughly 17,500 Gs. Now, this means that a 250-pound Santa, which seems awfully slim, is going to be pinned to his sleigh by over 4 million pounds of force. In short, for Santa to deliver all of these presents on Christmas Eve is nothing short of a Christmas miracle, isn't it? <laughs> now, that was just for fun. But speaking of Christmas miracles, can I tell you the second thing that might change your view of Christmas a little bit? Here it is. Most likely, Jesus was not born in a stable. Most likely, Jesus was not born in a stable. Now, before you go smash your nativity sets, I got nothing against nativity sets. Hang with me, all right? God's word is always our authority on these things. So let's go to God's word together. Luke chapter two is where we read the Christmas story. Luke chapter two records Jesus' birth. Here's what Luke says. He says, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available to them. Now, this is Luke chapter two. My guess is for some of you, these words are pretty familiar. I hope you read this text with your family during your uh, Christmas festivities. And when we retell the Christmas story, we typically tell it something like this, that uh, the census was being taken of the entire Roman empire. And so Joseph and Mary had to pack up and go to Bethlehem. That was Joseph's family hometown. And so he gets to Bethlehem, but the city's just swamped with people. And so there's no room in the inn. And the innkeeper says, well, you can go on back out to the stable. So Mary and Joseph go back to the stable. They're out there in the barn where they have baby Jesus and they lay him in a manger in the hay. Now, that might be true. But actually, I think more likely 
Jesus was probably born in the home of one of Joseph's relatives with Middle Eastern hospitality to help them and maybe even a midwife there to pitch in. But again, God's word is always our authority, so let's ask three questions of this text and let's test this theory a little bit. Question number one, what about the storied lack of hospitality? We always hear about the lack of Bethlehem hospitality. And the answer is, well, help was most likely available to Mary and Joseph. If you think about it, Bethlehem was Joseph's family hometown, right? He probably still had some relatives, even if they were distant relatives in the area who could help out. Your family may be crazy at Christmas, but I doubt they're gonna kick a pregnant lady out on the street, right? And especially some of you have traveled overseas to the Middle East and you know what this kind of hospitality is like. And in an honor-shame culture like that, nobody would kick a pregnant woman about to give birth out back into a barn that brings shame on the whole community. So we gotta ask question number two. What about the inn, right? And the answer is that Luke, the author here, uses the word kataluma to mean guest room. Now, a lot of the older translations that some of us grew up with said that there was no room for them in the inn, but that word for inn there that Luke uses is the word kataluma, and it's better translated as guest room, like in a house. In fact, it's the same word that Luke uses later on to talk about the upper room where they had the last supper together. And so uh, I know that lots of little boys have gotten their five minutes of fame in the Christmas pageant as the innkeeper who said no room, but more likely it was at the guest room in a house. So then we gotta ask question number three. What about the manger, right? Because it clearly says he was born and put in a manger. Well, uh, the answer is most houses had mangers indoors back then. Uh, back then in first century Palestine, most houses had two rooms in them. Hospitality is so important in that culture that they had one large guest room just for housing guests showing hospitality. And then there was this lower room where the family did most of the daily tasks of living. And in this lower room, animals could actually come in and out and the animals would often come inside to sleep inside out of the cold. And so they dug these feeding troughs into the floor of this lower room called mangers. Now, if we can imagine this scene, perhaps in the home of one of Joseph's relatives. There's a lot of guests from out of town in Bethlehem because of the census. So the guest room is really full. But when the time comes for Mary to have the baby, maybe Mary and the women go down to this lower room so she can have some more privacy and they deliver the baby right there. There's no rejection, no scurrying, no outdoor delivery. They just lay him in the manger right then and there. Now, before you burn your nativity set, hear me out, okay? Let me tell you why I even bring this up. I bring this up because sometimes... I think that our retelling of the Christmas story can unintentionally highlight the strength of Mary and Joseph rather than the strength of God. Hang with me on this. You can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but, but I think I often hear the Christmas story retold in one of two ways. Um, on the first hand, sometimes we hear it told like Mary is this saintly, angelic, perfect young maiden who gives birth to the Christ child without even breaking a sweat, you know, not a wisp of hair out of place, a halo around her head. She lays the little infant down in the manger and he's sleeping in heavenly peace. And my, oh my, even when the cattle are lowing and the poor baby wakes, little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now, any of us who've ever actually been around a baby, we know that's hogwash, right? Like, no, no way. And ladies, love you, so grateful, couldn't do what you do, but nobody looks good after giving birth. It's just true, they don't, especially without this curse-reversing miracle of modern medicine called the epidural. Can I get an amen, ladies, right? So I don't, I, I don't think it went down like the precious moments nativity scene, right? But sometimes then we swing the pendulum so far the other way that when we retell the story, we tell it like, well, 
You know, Mary and Joseph, they just really had to rough it and they're out there on their own and they got, they got stuck in the barn because nobody was there for them and they're, they're with the drool of donkeys and the stinky sheep right there on the dirt. But this teenage Mary with her indomitable spirit, she just gritted her teeth. She was so determined that she brought that baby into the world on her own regardless and the whole time she was singing, the cold doesn't bother me anyway, you know, the whole thing, right? I'm not sure that either one of these is exactly how it went down. My guess is it's somewhere here in the middle. And here's the thing about each of these. You see, the glory of Christmas is not Mary and Joseph's perseverance, but God's provision. The glory of Christmas isn't Mary and Joseph's strength. It's God's willingness to become weak. And I don't wanna read too much into this or throw stones or anything like that, but I think perhaps these two mistellings of the Christmas story kind of illustrate a couple lies that the enemy would really like us to believe, especially here in Hendricks County. See, a lot of people buying into this and it just wreaks havoc in their lives and in their faith. And lie number one over here in this scene of perfection is that you gotta have it all together. Like that your life has to be picture perfect. And then lie number two over here on this other scene is that you gotta do it all yourself. Like you just, gotta, you just gotta grit your teeth and knock it out and get it done. Don't ask for help. And I, I, I think these two lies are just so, so destructive because in reality, God is not calling you to pretend like your life is picture perfect, nor is he calling you to just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. God is calling you, even in the midst of your weakness, to just trust that he's gonna provide. And so we're back to our sentence. When you reveal your weakness... Jesus reveals his power. And in the gospels, we see that Mary is an admirable lady. I'm not not trying to make fun of that at any level. She is a woman of remarkable faith. But even we also see her moments of weakness. She wasn't perfect. Mary was a weak person, just like you and me. And yet through her weakness, God manifested his power. And he didn't ask her to have it all together. And he didn't ask her to do it by herself. He provided for her in her moment of need. When you reveal your weakness, Jesus reveals his power. Uh, A lot of you know, we've been in this series this whole year walking through the writings of a guy named John who is Jesus' best earthly friend, one of the 12 disciples. And we spent the beginning of the year walking through the gospel of John, which are these stories that John records for us from the life of Jesus. And then we walked through these three letters that John wrote to some early churches. And we've been closing this year in the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible that John also wrote for us. And we're ending this series talking about Jesus' first coming, the Christmas story, in light of his second coming, the day when he is going to return. And so we talked about last week, salvation and judgment. And this week, this week we're talking about weakness and power, weakness and power. Somebody said to me when I came into church today, well, I bet the sermon's gonna be weak today. Well, it's about par for the course, isn't it? What else is new? Because when Jesus returns, he will return in power. But first, he chose to come in weakness. Philippians chapter two says he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. Think about that. The God who breathed the breath of life into Adam became a baby struggling to figure out how to use his own lungs. And he grew up as an ordinary guy in a small little hick town and he lived an ordinary life and Jesus spent 30 of his 33 years on this planet living in obscurity, working a blue collar job. And contrary to the movies we see and the paintings we see, most of the time Jesus probably wasn't even the best looking guy in the room, right? The prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah 53, he says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. The son of God chose to come as a man of weakness. And that man of weakness then embarked on a mission of weakness. When Jesus decides it's time to kickstart his mission to save the world, he picks the most bumbling, unqualified group of 12 guys to be his A-team. And then at the last week of his life, when he comes riding into Jerusalem and what is supposed to be the pinnacle of his ministry, this moment of triumphant strength, he doesn't come riding in as a king on a war horse. He comes riding in on a donkey. What is powerful about a donkey? And this man of weakness who was on a mission of weakness then died a death of weakness because that same week he died on a cross, which was the most despicable thing that could happen to somebody in the Roman Empire. This is the ultimate declaration of weakness. And for all the world, it looked like in that moment Jesus was defeated. And yet we know the truth, right? That in Jesus' willingness to be weak on the cross, he flipped the world's dynamics of weakness and power on their head. And that through his weakness, God's power defeated our ultimate enemies of sin and death by raising Jesus from the dead three days later. And so now, here in the kingdom of God, we think differently about weakness and power than the way the world does. We know that God uses our weakness to show his power. Uh, this is what Paul says about the way God uses weakness. In Philippians, or first, excuse me, first Corinthians chapter one, God says this. He says, for the message of the cross, that means the message of weakness, is foolishness to those who are perishing. It doesn't make sense to the world. Like, why would you wanna be weak? But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And so now Jesus, this man of weakness on a mission of weakness who died a death of weakness is now creating a people of what? Weakness. You guessed it. And so we as the citizens of the kingdom of heaven live in this subversive way in the world where we don't think about power the way the world does. We actually live lives like Jesus did, willing to embrace our weakness so that God can reveal his strength through us. And Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians in his own life. In Paul's personal life, he had something that was wrong with him. And we don't know exactly what it is, but Paul calls it his thorn in the flesh. And we don't know, it's some kind of weakness, maybe a spiritual problem, relational problem, physical problem, we're not sure. But look at what Paul says about his weakness in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, and he says to you, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, this is crazy, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When you reveal your weakness, Jesus reveals his power. And it takes these two lies of the enemy and just flips them on their head. Lie number one, that you gotta have it all together. And lie number two, that you gotta do it by yourself. When you're, willingness, when you're willing to embrace your weakness, it just flips those on their head and Christ's power becomes strong in you. So in light of this Christmas story, Jesus' willingness to become weak, I want us to embrace our weakness as well so that God's power can be fully manifested in your life. I'm gonna give you two ways to embrace your weakness this week. Here's way number one. Embrace your weakness by confessing your sin. 
Embrace your weakness by confessing your sin. Sounds like a really uplifting and fun Christmas message, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, You know, the Bible says that because Jesus came in weakness, because he went through everything that we're going through, scripture says that he was tempted in every way that we are, and yet he was without sin, that because of that, he's now a safe place for us to go with our weakness. We're gonna sing later a song that's based on the text of Isaiah 9, 6. It's a text that often gets used at Christmas, and it says that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Well, what's a wonderful counselor? What makes a good counselor? Somebody who's been through what you're going through, right? And so the fact that Jesus came in weakness, he went through everything that you were going through, and yet he did it without sinning. He did it perfectly. That means that now we can bring our baggage to him. And look at this verse in Hebrews chapter five. I love this. It's about how Jesus treats us in our weakness. Hebrews 5, 2 says, he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. And we see this throughout Jesus's ministry that sinners love coming to Jesus, that oftentimes the people who are most comfortable around Jesus are the people who have the most baggage to bring to him. And that's how we should be as the people of God as well. We need to be a safe place for people to come in here and be weak, for them to bring our baggage and to meet God's power and grace in their lives. And one of the most dangerous things about living in Hendricks County, one of the most dangerous things about being here is that it's really easy to pretend like your life is okay. It's really easy to pretend like you've got it all together. You put the right Instagram filter on it and your life is picture perfect. But we need to be a place where it's okay for people to come in and be weak. This church is a hospital for sinners, not a social club for pretenders. Uh, There's a story um, told by a pastor named Jean Leroux um, who tells about a time that he visited a ministry called Love in Action, which reaches out and helps people who are caught in sexual addiction. And Jean LaRoe says at one of their group meetings, you know, he didn't quite know what to expect walking into this meeting. It's a pretty good sized group of men. And one guy stands up in the front of the room and he starts to tell his story. And the guy started talking about how he was driving home from work one evening and he uh, drove past an adult nightclub. And the guy said, I really wanted to stop. And all of a sudden, as he's saying this all around the room, hands just shot up in the air. And John LaRoe, this pastor, sitting back thinking, what in the world is going on? He's bewildered. Who in the world would ask a question during a story like this? And the guy up front, he kept talking. The guy said, I didn't want to, but I pulled into the parking lot and I went inside. And just then more hands around the room shot up in the air. And John LaRoe is still confused by this, but the guy went on again. He said, I spent the evening there And he went on to confess more of what he did. And again, more hands came up. And the man up front, he said, when I left, I felt so ashamed. I didn't think that God could love me. And at this point, almost every hand in the room was up except for John LaRose. He was so confused. He didn't know what was happening. Why are all these people wanting to ask questions and why is nobody answering their questions? And so after the meeting was over, the director of this ministry was talking to John LaRose and he said, you look troubled. And John said, I am troubled. Why were there so many people asking questions and nobody was answering them? And the director said, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. He said, we only have one rule here at Love in Action. You never struggle alone. So anytime that you've struggled with something that you hear somebody else confessing, we raise our hands. No one struggles alone. Man, I love that. 
And I want us to be a church where we raise our hands more than point our fingers. Can I get an amen on that? I want us to be a place where we raise our hands more than point our fingers. Can we just do that? Can we be honest with each other? Anybody ever felt like, man, how could God love me? When you look at your own brokenness, Anybody carry some regret over things you should have done but didn't do or things you did do that you shouldn't have done? Anybody carry in some uncertainty about the present, some anxiety about the future? Anybody else desperately in need of God's grace this morning? <laughs> I am. Man. And, and this is why it's so important, y'all, that, that we get you in groups, that you're in a group of people that you're doing life with side by side, practicing your faith together in deep, rich community where you move from rows to circles so you can look people in the eye and you know their story and they know yours and they can look at you and raise their hand and say, yeah, I've been there and I'm gonna walk with you on the way out. This is why it's so important for you to grow in that way because I know for me, anytime that I'm in deep relationships with people and I bring my weakness, I bring my baggage into the light, not only does it deepen my relationship with that other person, but it gives God a little more room to work in my heart. And so if you're not in those kinds of relationships, if you're not in the place where you can bring your weakness and even bring your sin into the light, God's power has not yet been fully unleashed in your life and we want it to be. In fact, the matter is, I mean, the odds are there's some of you in the room today who have some unconfessed sin in your life. You've got some stuff that's gnawing at your heart and it's just kind of polluting your soul from the inside out. And we're gonna have an opportunity later on in the service to pray with an elder. And if you need to confess some sin today, um, I'd encourage you to do that. And it's a safe place for them. You will be met with the power of God's ability to save and shower you with his grace anytime you reveal your weakness. I can promise you that. This is not because God's mad at you. This is because God loves you and he wants you to be whole. Steve's gonna read from James 5 later on that says confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can be healed. When you reveal the weakness of your sin, Jesus reveals his power to save. So reveal your weakness by confessing your sin. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing I want you to do. Reveal your weakness by trusting God's power. Reveal your weakness by trusting God's power. I don't know what season of life you're in right now. Maybe it's a great season, but I know some of you are in some really tough spots. Whether it's financial difficulty or it's family craziness around the holidays or you're grieving the loss of a loved one or you're mourning the poor decisions of someone that you love or it's health issues, I don't know what it is, but I do know that every person in this room this morning is fighting a hard battle. And when those times come for me, oftentimes my gut reaction, my default mode is to just kind of white knuckle it, you know? You just, you just hang on and you get up early and you stay up late and you work hard and you knock it out, you fix the problem, right? But what if this morning, instead of scurrying around trying to fix it yourself, what if God just wants you to trust him? God didn't ask Mary to have it all together. He didn't ask Mary to do it all by herself. He just asked her to trust in the middle of her weakness and she did. And look what God did. And this has been God's call to his people all along. Hey, just trust me. Back in the Old Testament, when Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt and they get to the Red Sea, they can't move forward. The Red Sea's right there. They can't move backward because Pharaoh's army's barreling down on them, bent on slaughtering them. And so the people start to panic. What are we gonna do? And Moses says to them in Exodus chapter 14, he says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. 
And this happens over and over again in Israel's history. Hundreds of years later, Israel was threatened again, this time by the empire of Assyria. And so they start scurrying around. What are we gonna do? How are we gonna protect ourselves? They're thinking, well, we could, we could make an alliance with Egypt, this pagan nation over here. Maybe they'll protect us. But God says, no, 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 no. Just trust me. And so he says to the people through the prophet Isaiah, he says, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. And so as you reveal your weakness by trusting God's power, he promises that this same God who parted the Red Sea for his people, the same God who sent his son down in weakness, the same God who allowed his son to die on the cross and then rose him from the dead three days later will manifest his resurrection power in your life as you trust him. He just will. So will you trust him? I wanna close today just by giving you God's words. They're a lot better than Luke's words. And I'm gonna end with a long reading of uh, scripture from Revelation chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22. This is the very end of the Bible And the words will not be on the screen. I just want you to let the words of God wash over you as we turn our eyes to Jesus' second coming and as we focus on the power that he will bring to us then. Just soak in God's power here for a couple minutes as you listen to his word and allow that to give you the courage to be weak when he's calling you to. Hear the word of the Lord. I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. 
but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then, then John says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. And all God's people said, Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love and our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.